Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and you're about to watch a conversation from Courageous Conversations 2021. However, before we get into that, I want to cordially invite you to Courageous Conversations 2022. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well. Register today at CourageousConvos.org. Tonight's conversation is Christianity and white supremacy. Now this is an important and crucial conversation if we're going to represent and reclaim Christianity. Tonight's conversation has four dynamic panelists. Welcome to the stage, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Akimini Yuan, Dr. Leslie Callahan, and Dr. Jamar Tisby. Tonight's conversation is moderated by David Bentley. I know you're going to enjoy this. Good evening. I'm clearly not David Bailey. David Bailey clearly is not Dr. Howard John Wesley, uh, but we are here anyway. I uh, want to go ahead and jump right in, and, uh, and whoever wants to, oh, before I do that, you can submit your questions via the website, and that website link is located in your book. Uh, there is a QR code that you can scan as well, so feel free to uh, begin to type your questions in as there'll come a point where uh, we will be reading them from here to ask, them, ask the panelists. The password is also listed in that book. We're here tonight to talk about Christianity and white supremacy, and I want to jump right in with the first question. How would you define white supremacy? How would I define white supremacy? Um, I think first I have to start off saying it's a racist, um, dangerous uh, myth that holds uh, that white people are superior to all other people, but particularly black people um, and indigenous people as well. And as a result, they should hold power um, and be at the head of the table everywhere. Um, that's how I would define that term. I mean, I would, I think the way I would define white supremacy is um, to understand that it's coming out of a historical context. Um, that in every society, there are ways of ordering um, and creating hierarchies. It's a result of the fall in every society. But the racial hierarchy in America is, is, is how that was established. And, you know, it, it put white people on top. And so um, the way that I define white supremacy is as a spiritual principality 
manifested economically, legislated politically, and affects us all relationally. All right. And, and so it's, it's important. <laughs> it's a spiritual principality, manifested economically, legislated politically, and affects us all relationally. So, and I think the way I like to illustrate this is, is, is when, you remember in 1954 when they had the Brown versus Board Education? Um, they put these white and doll babies and these black doll babies in front of these black children. They said, hey, which one's smarter? Which one is prettier? Which one is better? They said, the white doll baby. They said, which one's ugly? Which one's dumb? Which one's bad? They said, the black doll baby. And so what that teaches us, and they asked the question, they also said, they said like, hey, which one are you? And they said, the black doll baby. And so what, what, what that teaches us is that you don't have to have white skin to have a white supremacist mindset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just a way of a malforming that we've had where we've had laws, we've had ways of ordering society and, and behavior to say that white people are more human, have more rights to exercise dominion. And yes, laws changed 50 years ago, but, but culture doesn't change, society doesn't change, mentalities don't change as fast as you can change a law. Uh, some have described uh, white supremacy as the narrative of racial difference. And I appreciate that description because it, it uses the word narrative. And we've talked about white supremacy as a myth, White supremacy is a story. White supremacy is a story that has been told and retold about human dignity and the way it falls along racial lines. And to me, that is um, a, a sort of captivating definition because if white supremacy is a story, a very powerful one, <laughs> one that's been communicated very effectively, but fundamentally a flawed one, an evil one, a sinful one, then there is a better story to tell. And I think that is the project of Jude 3, Courageous Conversations, each of our ministries, and for so many black Christians and allies is to tell the better story, which begins all the way back in Genesis chapter one, about human beings being made in the image and likeness of God, as Akemeni has pointed out, not just individually, but collectively, not just bearing the image, but we are the image, right? And so white supremacy has taken this beautiful narrative that God has written and twisted it uh, in order to capture power and maintain power, uh, in, in this case, through racial lines. And I don't know what other questions you're going to ask, so forgive me if I'm overstepping, but I think it's important to recognize the effects of white supremacy, which are multiple, but two that I'll mention. One, white supremacy erases ethnicity. And, and, and by this, I mean for white folks, right? We often think of white supremacy in the ways it affects black people and other people of color, but in that journey of people of European descent across the Atlantic to the shores of North America, when they stepped onto the, the land uh, 
originally inhabited by many other people that would eventually become the United States. They traded their ethnic and national heritage and background for a race called white, which lumped them all together. So you were no longer French or British or Italian or whatever, and even other groups that originally were excluded on some level eventually became white. And they, they lost in that exchange a musical culture, a, a linguistic heritage, a history of their own nation and their own people. And they traded it for whiteness because as historian David Rodiger has written a book called The Wages of Whiteness, whiteness is a currency. It's valuable, it gets you stuff here in a white supremacist society. And then the other thing that uh, white supremacy does is it creates this opposite and inferior, supposedly inferior category of black or blackness. And that's also what catches up all other people of color, right? So, so, so black is the extreme, but if you are anything other than what is considered white, which has changed over time, then you are not white or of color, which, event, which always puts you in some sort of inferior relation to that which is standard or normative. So I would add to the wonderful things that have already been said that from my perspective, um, I think it's important that, and I appreciate everybody focusing not on the ideas, but on power. Um, it is the perspective that whiteness and the embodiment of whiteness leads to superiority and the embeddedness of that assumption in all of the structures of society, in every aspect. And it's also a global project, which is, I would add as well. Um, it's a global project of investing um, power in, in phenotype, in a particular look um, that, as you've pointed out, changes over time. That's good. Uh, you guys have kind of pointed to it a little bit, but if you can explain to us, uh, what does white supremacy look like today or how does it play out today? I'll start. The, the, the issue of embeddedness that I referred to in my um, earlier comment, um, there are some obvious ways that white supremacy plays out that have to do with, um, with economics, that have to do with uh, housing, that have to do with health. Uh, those are the more obvious ways. Um, there are subtler ways um, that you get at, at the way that people who are deemed non-white feel about themselves. Um, and so I think part of what it means to acknowledge that white supremacy is embedded in all of the structures of our society and throughout much of the world is that we have to continuously look for it and dig it out and expose it. Um, one of the problems I think that we have in our own society um, that also is getting embedded in uh, legal precedent is that you actually have to call somebody a racial slur for the law to regard it as a racist act. So as we're talking about, uh, as we're talking about 
um, disfranchisement and voting rights, you can show the effect, you can show the intent, that the intent is to disfranchise people based on their race. But if you don't say something that is explicitly racist by a very narrow standard, it's, it goes unacknowledged and it can stand. That's how white supremacy, I think, does its worst work, is the ways that we only recognize it when it is its most blatant form, its loudest form, and we don't dig out the ways that it has an impact throughout the structures of society. I think um, on that, Dr. Callahan's note, I would, um, I immediately go to, um, for an obvious example, I go to January 6, 2021. The white supremacist insurrection failed attempt, coup attempt, I should say, um, that happened, that started off this year. Um, people, um, in the name of trying to make America great again, which means they're trying to make America white again, um, stormed the Capitol and had every intent of um, hurting, maiming, uh, possibly killing, you know, some um, government officials. Uh, it just, my goodness, it was just stunning um, to witness. I mean, that's a very obvious example. Another example, we don't have an anti, federal anti-lynching bill passed still. And that is because America is a white supremacist nation. And that's just the facts of the matter. I mean, I mean, there's, this just permeates every um, society, every structure, as Dr. Callahan said, every institution, including the church. It is a global, um, a global project. Um, I mean, it, it, we will get to it, so I'm not gonna jump to, uh, to, to the, what I was about to say, but, but it, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. My goodness, walking in the store, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, the Olympics, y'all remember when um, the swim caps for the, you know for the black swimmers, and yeah. they were banned because those caps actually cover our hair, right? Because they could never imagine or envision black people <laughs> swimming, right? Um, and, and we know that pools have a history, um, particularly within this country, as uh, sites of violence for black people, right? And so we've been systematically excluded. Um, from that sport for so long uh, because of the racial history in this country. So in subtle and great ways, such as Dr. Callahan um, pointed out, it's, it's everywhere. White supremacy really doesn't need, um, I would say doesn't really need the explanation because it is the context. Like it really, it really is sadly in the air that we breathe, you know, um, even just with the, um, the floods that happened in Brooklyn. Were there floods in Central Park? No. You tell me that's not a manifestation of white supremacy in this land. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere, sadly. A very basic example I think of is in seminary. Uh, it was all theology until it was black theology, right. until it was Latin American theology, until it was Asian theology. As soon as it wasn't from a European, white, particularly male theologian, it had to be labeled. It had to have an adjective, it had to be described. And what that is, people say, well, that's not racist, that's not white supremacy. Well, here's how it works. White is considered right. White is considered normal, the standard, the default. And, and when that is the reality, then when you are anything other than what is considered that normal standard, you are other. And almost invariably other in a white supremacist society means lesser. So, so when we um, spent, you know, 
half a lecture one day on black liberation theology, it wasn't to, in seminary, wasn't to understand the context or the need for such a theology. It was to say, here's what you don't do. Here's how you do theology wrong. And here's how these other folks got it right. Well, isn't it interesting that they're all white men who were, yeah, many of whom were slave owners, right? Um, so, so that's the way it's, it's, it's so subtle because it's so pervasive. It's the air that we breathe and it takes a, a, a constant uh, consciousness to, to, to realize when we as, as black folks or other people of color are, are affected by it and, and embedded in it. So that's, I mean, that's one minor, I mean, important way, but an everyday way it shows up. You know, I, I would even say, like, interpersonally, I, 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 there was an old church deacon named Deacon Wilson that when I was in college, he said, son, come over here, sit down, let me talk to you. And I sit down and talk to him. He says, hey, get all the education that you can get. I only got an eighth grade level education, but make sure you don't become an educated fool. And so you know, I thought about that, and, and I, I, I think a little bit of like some of the Holy Spirit checks in my life of how white supremacy could be manifest, where um, sometimes those, uh, the grandma and the deacon, you know, when I get educated, I could no longer sit at their feet and get wisdom from them. And so like, like, like they didn't, because they can't read Greek or because they don't know the original context, yeah, then they can't know God anymore, you know? And, and they were the ones that prayed me on. to where I am, you know? Um, I, I think about the invitation where, you know, I got invited to move, and my wife and I got invited to move into a community that was a poor black community, and I really didn't want to live in a poor black community, and the Holy Spirit was like, oh, so you're not successful until you could buy a house and white people could buy a house. And I was like, so why can't you move in a, amongst working class black people? You know, I, and, and, and I didn't even, I couldn't tell, I mean like, it wasn't like a conscious thing, but it was this thing of like constantly measuring up. But then here's another way I see it manifest now. I, th I think there's a conservative and a, a liberal form of white supremacy. I think it's two sides of the same coin. I think one of it, it can manifest on the conservative sides of indifference, where there can be an amnesia to history, where like what happened yesterday doesn't affect today except for when it comes to issues of freedom or, or religious rights. But like, so, but when it comes to issues of like how laws of race affected yesterday and how it affects us today, then it's like, oh man, we changed laws and none of that stuff has any effect today. And so there should be like an indifference. But then you'll see an acknowledgement on the liberal progressive side and it ends up being paternalism. And that's the way like so white supremacy could be paternalism. So even like when you think about theology, and this is why I really appreciate Esau's work, is because sometimes there's this pressure in progressive circles to reject the faith that your grandma had. Like they believe the Bible. It maybe can't like tell you all the things, but they actually like, like really believe the Bible. But then on the on the conservative side, unless it fits within a certain kind of generally German flowing Protestant, um, you know, way of understanding it, then it's not actually true theology. Where it's what it says, and so we're oftentimes 
chose to pick which master to serve, and we can't think on our own and develop our own categories and our own different spaces. And I see this on both sides of it. And, and what I'm seeing a lot of times, because particularly I see there's like a, a lot of rejection of kind of white evangelicalism, but then I see folks jumping full into white liberalism, and it's still variations of the same thing. So, so I, I, I think it's so deep into our own, it's, it's, it's like a poison that I think the poison is diluting each generation. It's not, my grandma ain't dealing, I mean, like, like, like we're not dealing with the level of poison that in my grandma's generation, not dealing with the level of poison in my parents' generation, but it's not all gone now, and I think we gotta just yeah. self-examine, realize the, the sin, the evil that it is. David, you sort of jump to the next thing I'm thinking about is you kind of pointed to Christianity's role, uh, white supremacy's role in Christianity. So the next question I want to ask you all is, why is, why is white supremacy an important topic for Christianity and for black Christians or black people? In some ways, I, I can pick up. I think the question of how we see ourselves um, it's funny, when I saw that the question was coming, I was thinking about kind of how, how do you make sense of the faith? Uh, but your comments make me think about how we see ourselves and how we uh, determine and discern uh, what is actually faithful. Um, so part of the dynamic is uh, what is it? It's not just that we reject our, our grandparents' faith. It's what part of it we reject. Because it's true that they believed the Bible, but the way they used it, I mean, they used, I, I, grew up in a, uh, I grew up in a little apostolic church in Gary, West Virginia. Um, the way they used the Bible was, they studied it. I mean, we had the best conversations, the best arguments in Sunday school I have ever seen in that little church, people, I mean, they read it closely. But they also conjured with it. And so part of what we, part of what, the same back and forth, so part of what we reject in certain aspects of conservative black Christianity is the conjure part. Because we, we, our version, it, hap it happens within, um, it, it happens on the, you know, I believe the Bible, but I believe the version of the Bible that involves like getting at the heart and the plain sense meaning and, and it's not like throw the Bible down the steps and let God speak to me. It's like we disparage that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as you've already said, we also embrace wholeheartedly um, a version, it's not even just the Bible, a version of the faith where God doesn't actually exist. Where God is just uh, an idea that we use to get our version of justice. So, and you're absolutely right, both of those things are rooted in reading through, a, through the lens of white supremacy, and neither of those things were what our grandparents were doing. Neither of those things were what our grandparents were doing. Um, it, even in what would, I mean, when I think about the conversations, um, just, a, just a for instance, when I think about the conversations that my uncles who pastored the church I grew up in had about gender, now you would have thought they were conservative, 
by every, you know, if you ask them the, the literature they read, the stuff we, what they said about the Bible was, would have been regarded as conservative. But what they said about relationships wasn't hierarchical. They had a more complicated, the reason why we need to pay attention to them is that even as unlearned as they were, and in a formal sense, they actually had a much more complicated way of reading the Bible, and more importantly, of encountering God through it. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of why we have to, to pay attention to what white supremacy does is that it gives us categories, including conservative and progressive, that might not actually fit at all, either one. I mean, I just would love to bounce back off of this, you know, thoughts because I, I think there, I think there's two answers to this question. I think there's actually a, a, a actual contending that we have to deal with and a reckoning we have to deal with within Christianity as it relates to white supremacy because it wasn't Islam that was the kind of the religion that was used to perpetuate racism. It wasn't Hinduism right. that was the thing that perpetuated racism. Right. It was Christianity that was misused to represent racism and to, to, to order around it. So I think that like, when everybody can read the same history books and they don't wanna have uh, um, amnesia about it, like, you, you, we have to have an account for it. We have to be able to, to say, hey, this is what, was wrong about this. Mm -hmm. You know, history could be used to hide, it could be used to hurt, and it could be used to heal. And a lot of times we like to make these narratives that we want to hide about history by kind of telling a story about America that's better than the story that God told us about Israel in the Old Testament. You're not gonna read the Old Testament and be like, oh man, yeah, Israel was really great. You know, they had a little bit of flaws, but you know, they was overall pretty awesome. But that's how it is we tell a story about America. But then when you talk about, you know, you can use a hurt in a way to say like, hey, you've been messed up your whole life. You ain't gonna never change. You know, that's, that's not a way to deal with history. But, you, but I actually think that we can reckon with how white supremacy uh, um, as, a, uh, as, as, a, as a, a tool of healing. Like when you go to the doctor, say, what's your medical history? You know, when you go to the person that exercising, what's your, what's your exercise history? You know, when you go to a therapist, what, what, what's your story? What's your history? And so we have to be able to, like, I mean, white supremacy is in our history. It has affected us, but we need to use it in a way to be able to heal. And as I bring this to a close, just pastoring black people, like, I mean, every, all our ministry has come being in the black context, ministering to black people, and Folks are like, well, what you got to do with this? Like this white man's religion, like all of these type of things that we're talking about, uh, which, which I wish Jude 3 was around 25 years ago. Right. I mean, like, like these are very significant pastoral issues. I mean, yeah. the four spiritual laws ain't our pastoral issues. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> and th these are the type of things that are our pastoral issues. And now because of the manifestation and some of the fruit of, 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 of the things that's going on, it's actually starting to become the parents of, uh, of white kids, like, like they, they, the, 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 the white children, the next generation, are looking, asking some of the questions we've been asking for years. Because they're starting to see some of the fruit of this bad theology and, and this bad history. 
So, you know, I think we got to answer both the Christianity and, and, the, and the black faith as dynamic too. Martin, you were saying that um, the, the question, I want to make sure that I answer it correctly. Why is it too. important to Christianity and black people in general? White supremacy. To address white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I can be really real with y'all, I, 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 res I resent the fact that we have to have a conversation about um, white supremacy in conversation with black Christianity. Um, and that ain't on June 3. This is just the, the culture that we live in, right? This is um, the wages, the rotten uh, uh, fruit uh, that, that, that has um, uh, bore out in our society, right? Over 400 years of racial oppression that we have undergone. Um, but I, I do, I just, I, I hate that. You know, I, I just hate that we have to be in conversation um, about whiteness and white supremacy and blackness. You know, I think, I think it, I do want to go on record and say that I don't, I don't believe, and this might be controversial, but I just don't believe that blackness and whiteness are the opposite. Um, and I think for me, for me to accept that is to accept uh, the, um, the, uh, the thesis of white supremacy. Um, I think blackness stands as a judgment against whiteness. And I think black Christianity stands as a judgment against white Christianity in that um, I see blackness as an inheritance, um, as, as a gift from God. And, uh, and I see not only in it resilience, but I just see in it brilliance um, and I see, and that's not to say that the black church is not, it's not, it's perfect. I know we got flaws. I'm there, so that means we got flaws, right? Uh -huh. So, but, but I do think that there is just, um, just an ingenuity and wisdom that we gain from our ancestors. We talk about our grandparents' uh, faith. We talk about, we could talk about our ancestors' faith before they came onto the boat. And then when they got on the boat, and what they brought with them as well. And so I just think that there's, we have better stories to tell. I just believe that we have better stories to tell. I don't believe that our um, fate uh, will forever and always be tied to oppression, you know? And so I just, uh, in some ways, I guess I'm just, I'm off of that. I'm tired of talking about white people and white supremacy and whiteness, all right? Like we, we have a lot of good things to talk about. We really do. We have a lot to contribute, I think, to the faith. Now, I'm not ignorant. I know, I know, I know, I know. We always have to be very cognizant and wise about the ways and discerning, right, of the subtle ways that white supremacy creeps into our institutions, our black institutions, uh, like the black church, what that looks like. So we, we gotta be on guard, we have to be wise about that, so that's why we do have to have the conversation, right? Because it's apologetic, we're defending the faith. Um, and these are the questions that people are, the legitimate questions that people have uh, because of the, the face of Christianity in America, unfortunately, has been whiteness, and that's because of the media, and that's by design, by the way. Um, but I think, I, I just I wanna go on record and just say that I know we gotta talk about that, but I think we have better stories and more um, rich stories to tell about our faith. Um, and as Toni Morrison said, it's, it's a distraction, yeah. right? It's like we can't get down to like the real problems in our community because we're so distracted dealing with this stuff, which does impact our everyday lives, you know? Um, so anyway, I just feel like we need family meetings <laughs> apart from talking about whiteness. But that's just my little soapbox. So. So, uh, brilliant, obviously. Um, and there's always this, 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 
dual-sidedness, really a multifaceted sidedness when you talk about white supremacy, because on one level you're talking about all of the white. On the other side, you're talking about black folks and people of color. And, and part of what highlighted for me the genius of the black church tradition um, is understanding white supremacy better, which helped me to understand what Akemeni just said about almost black Christianity being a judgment in the sense, in a sense, right? Um, and many have said, you know, black Christianity has been the truest form of Christianity in the United States. Now, context is important here, right? Because if whiteness and white supremacy has been such a constitutive part of crafting this context, then, then black culture and black Christianity has pushed back against that most consistently, vociferously, and effectively. And in that sense, it is a way of understanding the faith that is uh, truer to, to, to forms of righteousness than we've seen from what I'll call, now we have to introduce a new term, white Christian nationalism. Okay. This has been what I call the biggest threat to the witness of the church in the United States is white Christian nationalism, which is why I'm so intrigued by this panel, because when you break, when, 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 when you talk about white supremacy in conjunction with Christianity, it becomes white Christian nationalism. What is white Christian nationalism? I tend to default to uh, the definition given by uh, two sociologists, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, in their book, Taking America Back for God, and they say Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, is an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. An ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. Now there's an asterisk by the word Christianity. When the Bible says that when you, any addition to the gospel is a negation of the gospel. It's no, no longer the gospel. So what, what happens in white Christian nationalism is you have this additive of whiteness to the gospel, which corrupts it so that it's no longer the gospel. So, so this is how they define Christian in the sense of white Christian nationalism. It is an ethno-cultural and political identity. Not theological, although there's theology in there. <laughs> ethno-culture and political identity that denotes a specific constellation of religious affiliation, cultural values, race, and nationality. Let me break it down. Religious affiliation, generally evangelical Protestant, they'll accept some Catholics and Jewish people if you align with the politics. Cultural values conservative, whatever that has come to mean. Race, white, although they'll accept people of color if you check the right boxes and you don't get too loud about justice. Mm -hmm. And then nationality, American-born citizen. This is why some people think we need a wall at the border, because it doesn't fit. You're not in nationally. How does this manifest? I'm sorry, just a couple quick. How does this manifest? 
Most people know, I wrote about this, but most people know about the Ku Klux Klan. We tend not to realize it came in waves. First waves after the Civil War, because again, they want to reify white supremacy. Oh, now we can't have black people in actual change. Oh, don't worry, we'll have vagrancy laws and we'll put them in convict leasing and have sharecropping and shackle them to poverty. Uh, the, the third wave was in the civil rights movement. Oh, wait a minute, these black folks want to vote? Like they were supposed to have been guaranteed that right after the Civil War and with the Reconstruction Amendments, but we actually never put that in place because we actually had state-level constitutional conventions that disenfranchised black people, black men, women, all didn't, still didn't have the vote. So, but the second manifestation was the most widespread, most violent, and most virulent. And it started in 1915 on Thanksgiving Day. And I'm, the, 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 the religious Christian symbolism with the white supremacy is what sticks out here. So it was a former Methodist circuit rider, meaning a former preacher, led a group of his white male buddies up to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, which was a desecration of an indigenous American site. And then they put up so-called Confederate heroes on the front of it, went to that site, did a couple of things. First of all, they put up a cross and they burned it, which of course becomes a symbol of white racial terrorism. They also built an altar, and on the altar they put the Bible and an American flag. And that was the, 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 the formal start of the KKK in the Jim Crow era. And now you see Bibles and American flags and pulpits. Now you see these massive celebrations of the 4th of July as if it's a liturgical holiday. Now you hear people talking about the Constitution as if it's a divinely inspired document, not one written by slaveholders, right? So, so, so we have to understand, this is one of the very sobering realizations I'm having to accept because of the data. It's not because I want to be here. Robert P. Jones wrote in his book, White Too Long, he said, quote, the, it, he's a sociologist, so he studied all of this. The more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. The more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. So if we wanna know how deeply this demon is embedded, we have to ask ourselves, if the entire theological and cultural project of Christianity in the United States, when it melds with white supremacy, if there's anything salvageable at all. Amen. Um, I wanna go back actually to something you said at the very beginning where I think is the, the root of the problem. Um, and I wanna talk about humanity. Um, you know, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm a lectionary preacher. This week uh, was James 2. Um, I recorded it before I left. Um, Faith without works is dead. And there's, there's the, the royal law, love your neighbors yourself. It's really interesting. In that moment, the, the text doesn't talk about loving God at all. Moves straight to loving your neighbor. Um, and because... Um, it is a sign, which they say, you know, when you show favoritism, text starts, when you show favoritism, you are unfaithful. Uh, you deny 
the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think one translation says. Because, they, because James gets, and 1 John gets, and if we're paying attention, we get that at the point where some people are not real people, some people are more people than others, some people are more human than others, your theology is automatically bankrupt. The problem and the reason that we have to pay attention to the um, distortions of white supremacy as it relates to the, to the faith um, has to do with the ways in which it renders some people less human than others. Um, and it, it plays out in all kinds of ways. Um, part of what you're talking about in the, the, the circuit writer who leads the Ku Klux Klan, Bull Connor teaches Sunday school. This is not, the, the connection between racism and virulent and violent white supremacy is not a new project. And you go all the way back, there's a moment, there's a moment I'm standing, I went to Ghana a couple of years ago, I'm standing in one of the slave castles and there's this moment where I have this insight. You can't shame folks who don't think you're human. In a slave castle, every slave castle has a chapel. It's a global project. Every slave castle has a chapel. The chapel is over top of places where people, human beings, are held as chattel. Every slave castle has a chapel. Some of them have two. You can't shame people who don't see you as human. The point at which Black people in Africa, black people in the United States are not regarded as your neighbor. Then you can construct not only a social system, but as you've already alluded to, a theological system that makes it perfectly fine for you to teach Sunday school in one place yourself and bomb somebody else's Sunday school at the same time. So here's, I think, the challenge that that moment for me in, in Ghana. So if you can't, if, if there's no shame in it, right? If they, could, if they could be in, you're in the slave castle, you're running the slave, you're running the slave project, you're worshiping over top of enslaved people who you, whose cries you hear and ignore. If you can do that, how do you reason with, with, with people who can do that? Or any of the, you, you brought up the Capitol uh, insurrection. The, the, the testimony of the officers were that the thing they saw the most other than the, the MAGA hat were Christian artifacts. So the project hasn't changed. I think this is the challenge. And the reason why we have to talk about it is because if we're not careful, we've gotten so educated, we go to places where we're being indoctrinated with the ideology subtly. So our preaching, our preaching isn't good enough. We have to, you know, if we tone it down, stop hooping. We gotta be, you know, gotta chill out a little bit. 
Um, shouting is bad because you know it's not it doesn't have it's not rational and intellectual enough. Um, too much too much sweat and too many bodies. These are that's white y'all. That's white supremacy. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, take the blues out of our chords and the songs that we sing. We have to be. We have to talk about it because if we don't talk about it, we're going to. Our, we're really, actually, for the very first time, we're going to become enslaved to it. Mm -hmm. That's good. What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at jew3project.org. I, I wanna take a moment to transition to some of the audience questions and people have been submitting them all, uh, after, all evening in this conversation. Uh, so please, you, you can still submit questions or vote on the ones you see here. So I'm going to take the ones that have highest priority in votes. H how would we know if white supremacy were no longer a dominant story in the U.S.? What would be the indicators? So um, I'll answer that, and I'll also go back, and because I want to clarify, because I know how we tweet and clip and everything else. <laughs> When I say, is there anything worth salvaging, what I'm saying is, when you study the history and even the contemporary data, you start to understand that in the US context, white supremacy has not been incidental within Christianity. It's been integral to it. We sort of treat racism within Christianity as if it's like a bad light fixture in the house. We just need to switch it out. When really it is a cracked and crumbling foundation. And the reality is we need to build and maybe build for the first time on actual gospel truth, a Christianity for all, which gets to the question, it will look multiracial and multi-ethnic. So here's how I'll describe it. I think, um, so I study race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. And, and looking at racial justice movements in the past from, from the late 1800s on up to now, I think what a movement would look like in the 21st century, which I think would also, in some senses, mirror what the church or the gospel manifestation would look like, would be multiracial, uh, very prominently women-led, youthful, and justice-oriented. Now, that's not all-encompassing. I'm just saying these are some of the characteristics and I think it would um, feel 
much more welcoming to people who, who didn't check all of these standard boxes that we now hold. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify on some of that and begin to, to talk about what it might look like moving forward. And the last thing I'll say is we may not know because <laughs> we've never done it before. <laughs> we're, we're building it now. So some of the struggles that you're having in your local congregation, some of these questions that we have, well, I can't stay where I am, but I don't know where to go. Some of these uh, uh, resources that we're looking for, the books, or how do I teach my right. kids this, that, or the other. Right. Actually, we're the generation that figures that out. Amen. So we may not know what it looks like because we're actually building it right now. I, I love to just like piggyback because I, I think we're in a tremendous opportunity. I actually see all this as opportunity. Um, you know, for our parents and any white person that like, uh, you know, might be our same age, It'd be a miracle for one to like have a gathering like totally like this, right? To but then even for us to go to school together or to grow up together and to have friends, like that's not newsworthy. It's not newsworthy for us to have cross-racial friends. But even the level of nuance that we're able to have now, right? It's because there there has been progress, but it's you know, it's not enough, right? It, like we're 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 still on this side of heaven. And so there is some kind of kingdom breakthrough that God wants to see. And so, you know, when you look at Acts in particular, like I, I, I live in Richmond, Virginia, um, maybe about three weeks before um, the Charlottesville situation happened in 2017. Uh, I got a call from a, a pastor mentor friend of mine asked me to come and preach and pastor the congregation the Sunday after they were like, hey, we're going to have a KKK white supremacist like, like rally um, about the monuments, and I'd love for you to come and pastor our congregation that day. So, you know, that's where the fast of the prayer starts, you know. Uh, you don't really get prepared for stuff like that. And, um, and, and so, but, you know, nobody knew they're going to have tiki torches and, 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 and a death and all that stuff. And so there were members of Urban Oxology that were, like, in the prayer service Friday night. You know, and 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 I get a text. It's like, hey, pray for us. They surround this building with tiki torches, and I'm like, what? I mean, like, what's going? Like, it was crazy. Yep. So then y'all know what happened. But for like two weeks straight, I was just sitting in to to um, when Paul was in Ephesus. We see that for two years he was in Tyrannus' Hall. He was discipling people into a, a new kingdom orientation. He was a Jewish man discipling Gentiles. Most of them were G Gentiles. And he's like hybrid cultural folks. And the discipleship got to be so serious that it disrupted the, the economic situation in Ephesus. And it got so disruptive that the principality called Artemis of the Ephesians really got disrupted, right? And it's, it just changed like so much. And I really believe that, that there is an exorcism that just has to happen. Like I think it's, it's, it's such a, a deep spiritual thing that I think we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities. And so, and I think that principality, we have to pray, we have to fast, we have to disciple. And what we will begin to see is a, a disruption, even like economically, because this, this principality, like, well, like, like your bitches welcome, say we hate Africans. Mm -hmm. 
they justified this thing because of the economic situation. So race always has been about economics. It's not about people liking us or not. Like, I mean, that, that could be very indifferent if I might like me or not, but it's really about the economic situation. But there's this twisting of a spiritual principality that I actually believe if we can handle this thing spiritually, handle it through discipleship, realize it's tied to economics, I think a lot of what it might look like is what happened at that kingdom breakthrough at Ephesus. And then when you look at what Paul wrote years later with the book of Ephesians, and you see a lot of his revelation about this new humanity, right, that's coming out of the spiritual breakthrough that happened, and years later when he's writing back, there's so much revelation that's happened. So I do believe it's, I think it's multi-ethnic. I think it's also multi-class, you know, and I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a full exercising of unity and diversity of all of humanity uh, um, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I, I, think it, I think it also looks like, um, I think we need to take seriously how diverse the thinking was in the early church. Um, I think that, that part of the dynamic of what it looks like to get to, to be living in this thing that we don't know what it looks like is to actually make room for varying interpretations of what it should look like. I actually think one of the features of um, one of the one of the one of the features of white supremacist Christianity is the idea that you can think a way, and if you just think the right way, what you do matters less. Um, and what I think would be more helpful is for us to have a more ethical centrality about how we're going to act. And then to make room for people to think different things, provided that they act in humane and decent and ethical ways. I think we need to turn that thing entirely on its head. And, and that's the place where I think actually uh, black Christianity has always sort of said, um, you know, as early as slave ancestors or enslaved ancestors, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. You know, they like, yo, like they, they always kind of got that this treat everybody right part was actually critical. And so then they read, how they read the Bible, they read the Bible through that lens as an interpretive strategy. And they read the faith, even of the people who were supposedly teaching them the faith, they read that critically through the lens. And yeah, but you don't act right. And I'm very clear, you don't act right. So you ain't right. So I think part of what we might be looking for is um, to come to some common sense about everybody eats, everybody has a place to stay, um, things that were central, by the way, to the Jesus movement before there was a Christianity. People would eat and, you know, take care of each other and that sort of thing. Let's make some clarity about that. And then we can, then we can wrestle about what we think about God or, or, or things that are sort of more specifically theological as we... And wrestle in community, not, not out, like we've agreed we're gonna be together, but we don't have to all think exactly the same thing to stay together. They, they said it all. I'm just gonna say the spiritual aspect, they, they covered all the ground, so. <laughs> all right, uh, there's another question. This is a good one too. What dangers of white supremacy are seen especially common in multi-ethnic churches or networks? 
Anybody want to take a jump on that? So, so can you repeat it. Oh, I'll repeat it one more number time. Number one. What are the dangers of white? What dangers of white supremacy seem especially common in white in multi ethnic churches or networks? And I would say this is present not just in multi ethnic churches, but this is a white way that white supremacy can get internalized, which is who is the expert? Who sets the standard? Who knows what's really right? That, when you find that person, that group of people, they usually fit in the hierarchy in particular ways. They're usually white and male, or they've been put in, if they're not white and male themselves, they got set in the position by people who were. Yes, yes, that's absolutely there's a, correct. There's a, you know, there's somebody behind, and I could name churches where this is true, but I won't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you, but you find out when, 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 the, when the white guy who gave you the church stops being happy, well, it was always theirs. They take it back. Facts. That's true. I mean, so I think there's oftentimes a very significant economic power play that's around. You know, I think that, um, I mean, in America in general, we need some true discipleship about kingdom finances. Uh, capitalism isn't kingdom finance, you know? And so I think, um, and just the be like generos like if you have to control the thing, it's not generosity. And Say a so, word. So it's, you know, these are, Say that again. this is key about like church planning, a lot of these like funded things. I mean, and this is, this is like a significant discipleship issue. And what's crazy about it is that Jesus talked about mammon. Like, right. like that, like right. he named the demon right. called Mammon, right. mm -hmm. and so, so we worship a lot of Mammon around around here, and we, and, right. and it's, you know, I, I stole this from Jeff Wright. I mean, he, he, he calls it. It's not Christianity. It's, it's American folk religion. You know, That's right. it's it's this synchronizing that kind of happens, oh, yeah. and so like we don't like the synchronizing of voodoo, which is like Catholic and Vudan. Well, there's like an, a lot of American synchronism with Christianity also, right? That's like happening. And so I think that's that. I mean, I think that, you know, in the multi-ethnic spaces, you know, rarely will you see, I mean, this is, this is like facts, y'all. You can marry whoever you want to marry, but rarely will you see a high-identifying black man married to a high-identifying black it. woman. Come on. Because I was about to park down that street. And, then, and there's wow. like, <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I'm just like, you got to look at the stats of that and ask why. Yeah. You have to ask why, like, of these, like, do these guys all, like, do they feel safe because of this, like, what's, what's going on in that space? And again, I want to be clear, it's not because I have a problem with people marrying whoever you want to marry. That's not, that has nothing to issue. It's just like, what's the disproportional statistical dynamic where you see the prosperous multi-ethnic church either be led by somebody who is white or somebody's not black, or if they're black, they're not married to a black woman and have a very like high identifying black existence. I mean, you just gotta ask a question and pray about it. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, there's just something about that. Yeah. So, you know, I think these are things where we have to be able to like just put it into the light and see what the Holy Spirit is saying about these things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 I 
it, 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 and I'm glad that's a black woman that said that. I just want y'all to know that. You know, so like. <laughs> Joy. <laughs> I was going to just say um, briefly in um, this upcoming book, Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. All right. In it, I pre-order it at bookshop, support black bookstores um, and black women. Um, in it, I have a chapter about decon as discipleship. And in there, um, it deals a little bit with this, but I think, I think really when you ask that question about just the dangers of white supremacy in multiracial spaces, ask the black women that are caught on the underside right. of the power dynamics, right. who are cut in the undertow of that, right? Because right. they got to pay for the wages of whiteness in those spaces right. because that's they are right. not right. male, right? That's right? And then they are put in a subordinate position and they are um, what I call in the book invisibilized in those right. spaces, right? So they suffer from hypervisibility because they're black and female, right? right? But then they're also invisible, you know, because of those very things, right? And because of the, um, the predominance of the uh, 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 biblical manhood and womanhood, right. you know, um, made up, <laughs> uh, made up uh, um, structures uh, or, or uh, a theory um, posited um, in those white evangelical spaces. It is black women who suffer, right? In, right. Those, in those spaces um, at the expense of black brothers who are willing to sacrifice them on the altar of their desire to be the magical Negro or to be tokenized. And so they offer themselves up to that. And so it is very rare. I mean, the reality is that a lot of these multiracial churches, maybe not all, um, but quite a few of them are bulwarks of white supremacy. And you just have to name that and you have to own that. Um, and so, I, yeah, my question is, you know, ask the black women in those spaces. And I, then I'll say, don't ask them because that will traumatize them, right? And, and trigger them, right? Because they could, they could write a whole dissertation about the wages of white supremacy in those spaces. Um, and the body keeps the score. The body yes. keeps the score. The body keeps the score. And I'm so glad we're talking about the effect of even multiracial churches on black women first. And then second, we got to talk about the way black men participate in that power structure. Um, because one of my theological mentors, Bill Pinnell, who's in his 90s and uh, is at Fuller Seminary, um, he wrote a very revealing book that, that, that um, is likely out of print now, but if enough of you ask for it, they might reprint it. Um, it was called My Friend, the Enemy. And it was published in 1967 or 68. So this is during the Black Power Movement, published by Zondervan, actually, which was a big step for them because it was a black man telling white evangelicals about themselves. And in it, he basically simply says, they, they always have one favorite Negro. What to say? And we see this playing a lot, playing out a lot in multiracial spaces. And I was one of them. I thought I wanted to be there. This is part of my testimony. I know some of y'all been saved all your little life. <laughs> it takes courage to name that. I mean, mm. there's an allure to white supremacy and, and in, in these Christian spaces because you can end up on a stage. You can write a book. You can get a podcast. You can do all of these things that look like success in ministry and that is open and available to black men in a way that it never has been to black women. And 
black men buy into it, but what we've been learning in, in a very sort of accelerated way over the past five to six years especially is there's a limit. As long as you talk about, you can even talk about race, but as long as you talk about racial reconciliation. Right, right. Come on, right, come on. Right. As long as you talk about white and black people being friendly together, yes. and it's like the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Like, that's cool. Yep, yep, yep. As yep. soon as you start talking about racial justice, well, redistributing resources and funds, on. the money, as soon as you talk about, oh, no, the structure has to change, mm -hmm. right? That's when you get cut off, deplatformed, all of these things. That's People right. want to talk about cancel culture. The original cancel culture is white Christians canceling yes, black Christians, black right? Christians, right? Yeah, that's true. That's so, true. so, but we did all of that, and yeah. our sisters were the ones who, who, who suffered the most in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. So I see another question here. I personally like this question. Um, if you could have a conversation with Vody Bakum, oh, no. oh, no. what would you say to him? I'm not being messy. It's a question that's here. But I like it, though. If you could have a conversation with Vody Bakum, what would you say? I would start at the place that I stopped a minute ago, which is... Um, I think I'd start with a question that I learned to ask in seminary. If I take your theological, if I take my theological social position to its logical conclusion, what does it look like? What do people look like? Um, I think that's the question. And I think that's the question we can, I think we ought to be all asking ourselves that question. I think we ought to ask it in our sermons. I think we ought to ask it. I think that's the question. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. What does it look like if we take your if we if we believe what you say? Well, first thing I would say to the brother, I, it was really painful for me to read the book. I mean, I was almost in tears the way they took you down, bro. The way he took you down, and I mean, like, I mean, it's just I could talk about all the brother, like, books in here. Oh. I mean, I mean. He, and, and he just was, I mean, these are people that I know that we text, and I'm like, what you're saying about what they think is not what they think. And you take one thing, I mean, we, we just can't, I mean, we just can't take these sound bites. I mean, it was, you know, so I, it, it was very painful because I just think it was, it was very slanderous just in general. I think it was very slanderous. Uh, but the thing I, I would say is that this is a, this is a neo-fundamentalist debate. I mean, if you look at, like, if you understand, like, if the fundamentalism of the 1920s, this is 2020, it's the same kind of argument, but we're just, instead of the scopes file, we're talking about science and evolution, it's, 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 it's now talking about race right. and applying that same hermeneutic to race. And so even, this is kind of why he's, 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 like, splitting off with some of the reform brothers, even on the, the, the sufficiency of scripture, you know? And a lot of folks that, you know, he was talking about sufficiency of scripture. I mean, these are Bible-believing people. Like, like, I mean, just, so, you know, I, fun, even fundamentalists can't define even evangelicalism, 
right? That, that, that's even like a narrower, narrower uh, uh, theological perspective, even within a certain theological perspective. So, you know, it hits all the hot buttons for folks that love that. Just because it's popular doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Let's just say it that way. And so, you know, um, and I, you know, I would love to talk to the brother, you know, and, and actually have a healthy dialogue in, in that space. But, I mean, we got to stop taking each other down off of Twitter and writing books about each other as Christian brothers and sisters. But there was one, there was like one rule that, the wrath of God will come down. If me and my sisters ever got in a fight outside the house, then we had to deal with our parents in ways that uh, we didn't want to deal with them. And I really do think, like, I know we're like in the Twitter world and in the social media world, and you could write books and say all kinds of stuff about one another, but we are Christian brothers and sisters, even if we disagree with one another, and we gotta honor and respect one another in that way. And so that's, that's what I would say to, to, to the brother. Oh. Yeah. I just turn to wonder. I do. I really do. I do. Um, when he comes to mind, I do pray for him. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I think that's just some deep racial trauma stuff there. I, I just don't know. So I ain't got nothing else to say. You know, just God bless your brother. I don't know. I just, I didn't say nothing at all. <laughs> I wrote. 65,000 words in my first book and 60,000 words in my second book and that's all I got to say. <laughs> Here's another question uh, that the audience has asked. How can you tease apart Christian concerns that black Christians care about that have been co-opted and mixed in with white supremacy like neighborhood crime or concern for the unborn? You ask the question again. Yes. How can you tease apart Christian concerns that black people care about, black Christians care about, that have been co-opted and mixed with white supremacy? Oh. There's no singular black thought, though. Right. You know, so, so any one of us can fall on different um, spectrums when it comes to, like, that I would say, assume that's abortion, right? Or that they're talking about the unborn. Neighborhood you know, crime. I'm or concerned. gun violence or, um, so yeah, I, I, think, I think we have to honor the, the diversity of blackness and the diversity of black thought um, and the diversity of the black church, right? Um, there are billions of ways to be black. And so I, just, I do think we need to complicate that. <laughs> you know, I think there's, and I think that's a, a byproduct of white supremacy. Like this one singular narrative, you know, of what do the black people say about this? Right. What do the black people say about that? Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't really concern myself with um, responding um, to those racial jabs about well, what about black on black crime, right? Or what about the unborn? Uh, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty secure on my positions on those. And I've declared myself even on at Courageous Conversations about these subjects. And so, um, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I, just, I try not to care too much about um, people's opinions about me, but it is what I'm doing honoring God? Is it honoring my neighbor? Am I being, uh, am I glorifying God in my ministry, in my speaking, in my teaching, in my preaching? Those are the things I try to concern myself with. And am I honoring God in the voting booth, right? As best as I can, with the not so great options that we have, right? You know, am I doing the best that I can toward my neighbor? I think that is much more um, 
I don't know, faithful and more important for me to worry than about what some racist thinks about the black community's response to, you know, gun violence or whatever, the unborn. So. I think this, the question about mixture is actually really important. Uh, you talked about syncretism earlier. Um, <clears throat> here's what I think is true. Um, I, I think one of the, part of the genius of Christianity is that it's always been able to mix with other stuff. Um, that's actually how Paul was really great at it. Um, it's it's the 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 Christianity that had the closer you were to indigenous faiths, and the more you could map on to things that people were already asking questions of, and issues that were already present, the quicker and the more embedded Christianity could become. In places that didn't have those same sort of questions, Christianity isn't done very well. Um, so, syncretism is a feature. Christianity is inherently a syncretic religion. Um, when we're talking about talking about church fathers, they were Neoplatonism, and I mean it, it's an inherently syncretic. I think the question is, what did you mix it with, and which things distort the heart of Christianity um, and the faith of Jesus? Which, which thing? So I, I think I think this is the I think this is the problem with the way white supremacy has malformed Christianity in the United States and made it a bankrupt project? I'll just answer the question you, you, that you, it wasn't much of a question when you asked it either. It is a bankrupt project as, it, as it's played out because of the way that white supremacy is a part of the foundation of it. Um, and so uh, one way I would do it in terms of the things that, that, that are important in black communities is that I would let black folks and those communities be the ones who define those issues um, as opposed to having it sort of fed back, you know, in a billboard somebody else put up, um, in a pamphlet somebody else wrote, um, in a political project. Here's the thing that's funny about it. Um, black folks figured out how to vote. Despite all of that, despite all of those sort of machinations around things black folks care about, being mixed in with white supremacy, black folks are like, eh, nah. So I think there's a, I, I think, so, have, if, so if you're wondering why, then ask them. Ask, the ask folks in those communities. Okay, so on the basis of what you've already how do you reconcile these, these various positions that you hold with the way that you cast your ballot or the way you engage the neighborhood or the way you engage even folks you know who were violent in the neighborhood? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I like what you're saying because, you know, when I use the word syncretism, I'm kind of talking about mixing with something. Up. I'm seeing that in a different way than what I call contextualization. I think contextualization is like a thing of like it's neutral. And when I'm using the term synchronizing, I'm saying like something that's opposed to what the gospel is saying, right? And, and that's how like I'm making a little bit of a distinction and how I'm using the term. But then when we kind of get into the scenarios, like I, I live in a, my wife and I live in a black neighborhood. So when we're talking about abortion, like we're talking like the medical center that used to be a thriving medical center in our, in our at one point segregated community became the Planned Parenthood Center, and that's like a way where a lot of folks can get 
uh, female health care, affordable female health care. I'm saying, like, I understand the nuance of what's going on because I see it. Like, I mean, that's when I go to the store, right? Like, I, I see it. Like, the, the grocery store became a dialysis center. It was 45 years before we got a new school built in our neighborhood. And they started working on the new jail that's at the bottom of the hill of our middle school before they started building a new middle school called Martin Luther King over top of Martin Luther King Bridge. So I, I live by the Martin Luther King Bridge. You know I live in a black neighborhood, right? right, right. So that's like, <laughs> so, so, you know, man, the reason why we learned about lament was because we were always at these prayer visuals. Of black on black crime and, and like and, and 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 so many people are taking in folks. Like when somebody's pregnant or whatever the case, like these are things, and this stuff doesn't get news highlight reels. And so you know, I think a lot of folks that say things like that aren't in proximity with the situation. So my answer would be like, hey, get in proximity with some black communities or Latin communities, or whatever communities you want to talk about, and just see how things work out on the ground, and see how Christianity has been contextualized and embodied within this particular context. I want to ask one last word, because we've got about four or five minutes, just a quick, maybe 30 second, 40 second thing. What practical advice would any of you give on the road to dismantling white supremacy and detangling it from Christianity. My third second is just like, spend time in the word, spend time with the Lord, spend time with some old people who have dealt with unleashed white supremacy, you know, with the grandmas. And I always try to, as much, I mean, I read a ton I, you know, I, I read a lot of these scholars and get a chance to hang and learn from them, both personally and in their professional situation. But I have a practice of like allowing, on a regular basis, folks who don't have degrees, folks that 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 did not f finish high school, they just like when they pray. Like when I need to get a prayer in, I generally am not calling my seminary friends. I'm calling the grand, my grandma, I'm calling like some folks that just like have had to trust God in ways that my degrees, there's just ways I just really don't have to trust God, if I'm like really being honest, right? Um, because of my social networks, education, all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I constantly am like with folks who have been faithful over years and, and try to see, to, to, to self-interrogate these things to try to see what truth is and really put this stuff in front of the Holy Spirit because I know it's a principality that's, that, that's, that's like a, a, a toxic disease that's, that's just very easy. It's in our water, it's in, in, in the air that we breathe. And, and, and it, re, it reminds me of when Jesus like, was washing the feet and, and Peter was like, man, I don't want you to wash my feet. He was like, I, I need you to wash your feet because your feet gonna get dirty. Just being, and, and I think that's the way white supremacy works. It's like that, that dust that can kind of corrupt us, but it's a very disease-oriented type of thing. So I would encourage you to spend time with the Holy Spirit and the Word and with people who have walked, walked by faith. 30-second 30, 30 stab. Um, I would say um, to remember that Christianity is 
historical <laughs> uh, religion, uh, Afro-Asiatic uh, religion. I think having to remember that is important. Um, I would say um, hold on to Jesus. Um, fix your eyes on not only the crucified Christ, right? Um, because if Jesus only was crucified, then we're not saved. <laughs> um, but he died and he rose, okay? Um, and, and he rose because he was sinless, right? Um, and, 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 and if you die, it's because you sin, right? <laughs> so Jesus rose and he's coming back. I think we have to remember, you do have to remember the gospel. Um, and I think you have to remember that this faith, this beautiful faith predates white supremacy. It predates whiteness. It predates all of that. Um, and so being able to, like David said, read the word um, and, and, and know that this is, um, that this, this word was given to you as a, as a descendant, right? from the, the very regions where the Bible arose from anyway. And I think we, we just can't forget that. Um, and I think we, it's easy to forget that in this context, particularly in America, although white supremacy is a global project, but I think right here, it is so concentrated. You can easily forget that. Um, and so, so yeah, th those are the, my, my exhortations and encouragements. Um, I, I would, um, I think you, I would listen to and take seriously the experiences of people who, who are under the, the foot of, um, of these hierarchies, the hierarchies in general. I would listen, um, and I would, and I would do some self-examination. Um, I think that the, the beauty of being in the presence of God and in reading scripture and in being prayerful is that, um, you know, we uncover, the spirit uncovers the roots of these things in us. Um, and I think don't be afraid of being called a heretic because the embeddedness of white supremacy in the American Christian project is such that at the point where you are starting to take off this yoke, what you're saying is going to sound a little askew of, of what has been the norm. So be prepared, be prepared to get deplatformed and not just by white people, um, and, and not just by, you know, whatever the theological persuasion is where you think that will happen, um, but be prepared for some other folks um, who, who want to be successful in a capitalist white supremacist system to put some distance between, them, between themselves and you. Malcolm X said, of all our studies, history is best qualified to reward our research. So, study history. I really don't think we will respond to racism and white supremacy in our day with the urgency it requires unless we understand the depth and the historicity of the problem. So you learn things like about the KKK and also about these so-called great theologians who were also pro-slavery and pro-segregationist and all of these things. You learn about 
lynchings and all the heinousness, but as David said, history can also be used to heal. So you also learn about saints like Fannie Lou Hamer, who had everything against her, worldly speaking. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. She was also a Christian who understood that her faith, her devotion to Jesus required justice and wasn't a departure from the gospel. And it's in studying history that we learn about this great cloud of witnesses who held on to hope, because I think that's the struggle, especially right now, um, is to hold on to hope that there is a resurrection and that the struggle against white supremacy and for racial justice isn't not, is, is not just about how it changes the world, it's about how it changes us and how that struggle molds us into who Jesus wants us to be. And there's so many reasons to hold on to hope because Jesus is our hope. Well, amen. If you have been blessed by our panelists, won't you give God a hand of praise and a thank you clap to them. Thank you so much. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited to come to you to talk about Courageous Conversations 2022. That's right, we're at it again for another year. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well, but don't miss this year. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.